0: Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. This episode comes from a talk given at the Consortium of Classical Educators in the summer of 2023. Well, welcome. I'm glad to see you guys. Um, This is my husband, Tim. And um, I'm Jennifer Courtney. We, have, we were high school sweethearts. We have four kids. Three of them have graduated from our homeschool. Um, and we have one who is going into high school. So we had a little gap there. Um, our oldest son actually works with Tim at his wealth management firm. And um, I have been working with classical conversations all of the time that I was homeschooling my kids. I did major in English literature and have finished my master's in literature and rhetoric just recently. I took a long gap there too. I started it after college and finished last year. So, you know, um, I took a small detour, but uh, I've enjoyed poetry for a very long time. And I'm excited today because um, we are actually gonna do a workshop. So if you have a pen or multiple colors, I know some of us like multiple colors, um, then we are gonna be writing up our poems. But one of the things that, that I like, I have noticed as I have been, doing this for a long time is that sometimes as we grow older, we forget to look and listen. And that's what poetry is all about is looking and listening. And so we, we remember that when our children are very, very small, we read them nursery rhymes and they might recite them back to us. And then somehow we forget to just read and look and listen. So attention to the thing in front of us. Mm-hmm. Come on in. We're in poetry. So attention to the thing in front of us becomes one of the most important things in an education, actually seeing and hearing and sometimes tasting and smelling and touching the thing that is right in front of us. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to pay attention to the surface. Um, Just to give you an example of that, when I would read to my kids in the morning, um, since I had a tenure gap between oldest and youngest, sometimes that was tricky, but I would read to them stories from the Bible and then stories from literature and sometimes poetry. And um, did you need anything Luke? You're good? Okay. Um, Taking photos. photos, Great. Um, So I would read to them these stories and I would always start in what my kids like lovingly called reverse birth order because I always wanted to let the little one go first so that no one would steal her answer. And uh, but also because one of the things we noticed is that she was staying on the surface and actually listening. The bigger kids might be trying to figure out what something meant. She wasn't yet doing that, and often that helped us more than anything else. So I'll give you an example. When we were reading about Joseph and his brothers, I I said to her, what did you hear? And she said, I heard that Joseph got twice as much food as everyone else at the meal. Well, of course. I'm sorry, that Benjamin, did I say Joseph, that Benjamin got twice as much? Well, she paid attention partly because that's her brother's name and partly because twice as much food is a big thing. When you're in a family of four, getting special treatment is the thing you notice. <laughs> so she paid attention to that, and all of a sudden my big kids, who had been in the room for the story said, well, how come he gets more than everyone else? And suddenly we had a place to go with our conversation because the smallest one. Same thing when we were looking at art. She would stay on the surface and say, this is really a bright red. Why? And then the older kids would start to see the thing that was in front of them. And so we're going to see and hear the poems that are before us. And I apologize for the Christina Rossetti poem. If you are of a certain age, that's kind of (laughs) tiny. All right. So um, I'm excited to talk about her today. She um, comes from an interesting family. She was a Victorian British poet. And um, like so many artistic families, everyone in the family was of an artistic bent. And so her brother was the famous pre-Raphaelite painter during the Victorian era. And then and he actually illustrated her famous volume of poems called Goblin Market. So um, but I'm also excited to talk about her because this morning I took advantage of being in this part of the world. and went to Emily Dickinson's house and they were about as close contemporaries as you could possibly get. Christina Rossetti lived just slightly longer, but um, they're, they lived roughly the same year. So, all right, we're gonna pay attention to our sights and sounds here. Oh, and let me say, why am I starting with this poem? Because if we are looking at anything that might remotely be new to us or intimidating, it's a bad idea to start with something really hard. Um, so if I'm gonna teach, uh, a concept to my children. I'm not gonna start by teaching them to do long division on a trinomial. That's a bad place to start. I'm gonna say, can we cut a piece of fruit up into pieces? And then can we remember how to do long division? There are rules to that. And then maybe we'll tackle the the trinomial, but not in the other order. And so I would suggest doing the same thing with poetry. So start with something really surfacey and easy. All right, so we'll read it together. Who has seen the wind? neither I nor you, but when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. So first thing we're going to do is pay attention to the sounds of it. Um, if I were doing this with very young children, I'd probably go back even another step and say, what do you notice about looking at the poem on the page? Because they need to know that poems capitalize the first letter of every line, and they, they tend to punctuate differently. And, and often I had my children copy poetry and then illustrate it. And so those are important things to attend to. But since we're grownups, I think we can probably start with the sounds. So if we look at the word at the end of the first line, who has seen the wind, we're gonna label that with a lowercase a. We're gonna scan the poem. Are there any other um, words that either rhyme with that or repeat it? Wind is there again, so label that small a again. Any other ones? Yes, thank you. Okay, well, let's, let's look at the word "you" at the end of line two and let's label that lowercase b. Are there any other words that rhyme with that? Sure. Okay, we're gonna label that lowercase b. All right, now we'll look at the word trembling. Does anything go with that? No, so it's c all by itself. All right, so then we get down, we, gonna, we have um, b by the word through, right? Is that where we are? I'm doing this without having it marked. Yeah. And then when do we have a, all right. And what letter are we on? D, we're on D. Okay, so we're gonna label I, letter D. Um, Anything that rhymes with it? Okay, so that's a a D. And then did we have anything that rhymes with heads? that's gonna be E. So it's a pretty simple rhyme scheme, um, which actually makes this poem quite easy to memorize, besides the fact that the ideas are very parallel. We have neither I nor you, neither you nor I, right, so we've got some ways, catchy ways to memorize it. So as you were listening to this poem, I'm going to read it one more time. Um, Tell me how you would have answered that question, who has seen the wind? Who has seen the wind? Neither I nor you, but when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. So how would you have answered that question, who has seen the wind? anyone? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't think of ourselves as having seen it, but your kids might. Um, so what, if you've discussed this with your kids, what do you think they would have defended their answer with? I would suspect my kids would say, yes, they've seen the wind, mm-hmm. right? This is probably what they're going to say. They have not grown up and become, um, you know, wise and skeptical. So um, what kinds of evidence would they give of their claim that they've seen the wind? The trees moving? The tree's moving. Yep. Clouds. Clouds. They can feel it. Good. Yeah. Can it they can hear it. They don't ignore those things. Mm-hmm. They're, they have not yet learned to sort sensory experience quite the way we have. And therefore, they don't ignore the things that we ignore. So they would they would definitely notice that they've heard it and felt it. Good. Anything else that they would give as evidence? Waves. Waves. Yeah. Good. I know my son. So I had one boy and then three girls. My son would have said, Well, there's a kite on the page. <laughs> so I'm going to use that as my answer. <laughs> I've seen it because there's a kite. Um, yes, yes. We're from Oklahoma. So yeah. Tornadoes would be a big answer for us. Good. Um, so I recently did this exercise with some homeschool leaders internationally, and um, as we got into this poem, they said, Wow, this is really deep and theological. So, what kinds of things might you point out with your kids if you were or your students if you were discussing this poem with them? I refer back to John Okay. Yeah. And you'll find that in many of her poems. Good. Anything else? What do we associate the wind with in Scripture? Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe Pentecost. There's a mighty wind. Good. Any other theological thoughts about this poem, this little tiny poem? Well, trembling and reverent fear. Yes, good. That's a good image of, of a posture before... Before the Lord. Good. Bowing down the head. Yeah. The trees clapping their hands for joy, too. Yeah. The idea yeah. that nature responds to God. Which is a big part of, of poetic imagery and helping us to understand that analogy of who he is. Good. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that I've, when I've done this with older students, because I I tend to either hang out with three-year-olds or 16-year-olds, I'm not sure why this is, this has just been my life, I'm either teaching three-year-old Sunday school class or I'm teaching juniors in high school, and um, this is a very excellent poem for us to look at together when they're studying chemistry, because this poem is about seeing the things that are unseen, and so is chemistry, and so is our faith. And so we can't see subatomic particles. There's a lot of faith in chemistry, frankly, and we're not seeing a lot of the things. We're seeing the evidence of them, but not the things themselves. And so we can have philosophical conversations and theological conversations about seeing the unseen. The same thing is true as they advance in mathematics, that they are, they are seeing a lot of things that we have never seen, imaginary numbers, for example. So it can be quite a deep discussion, but yes. That is a fierce, yeah. that, is a, that is an intense wind, and there's this contrast between that maybe less fearful, more curious interaction with the wind, and then more of a awe or fear. Yeah. It's amazing to me the more times I read and discuss this poem, just how much she has crammed in <laughs> to such a short space, which is... Definitely one of the ways that poetry works. So, yeah, so you've got both of those kinds. There's many kinds of wind, and some of those are represented here. Good. Does everyone feel warmed up? Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. We're going to read a longer poem Ozymandias. I think that's how you say it. Um, So this is Shelley, the romantic poet. I'm a little sad. My friend Sarah Abbott is doing a workshop on Frankenstein right now, which I wanted to hear. So I told her she has to give me a recap tonight, but um, Mary Shelley, for those of you who know, was his wife. And so they were part of the romantic poets. He did not live very long. He died when he was 29 of a boating accident. So he crammed a lot of existence into a very short life. Um, So we will tackle this one, and we'll try to look at the sights and sounds again. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So before we look at the the words on the page, what kind of an image did you get in your head? This is a pretty narrative poem. So what did you see in your mind's eye as we were reading it? Okay. All right. Good. Anything else? Okay. Yeah. We've got sand. Good. Okay. Yeah. Ruins. Yep. Good. Huh? Okay. I have a hard time ever since I saw Lord of the Rings separating this from those giant faces that were down on the ground That's in the roads. It. It's amazing how your imagination gets taken over once you watch a movie. Um, yeah, so we've got this, this statue out on the sands and, and what does the face look like? Yes. He's shattered, he's frowning. Yep, he's got a wrinkled up lip. Yeah. yeah. You've seen Egyptian statues that look like this. Yeah. They're not designed to look friendly, are they? <laughs> They're designed to look powerful. Good. All right. So now let's just, let's, again, we're gonna stay on the surface. We're adults, so our minds want to make a lot of meaning, but we're not gonna do that right now. Let's start off and um, do the, the simplest thing of looking at poetry and count the lines. So how many lines do we have? 14, okay. That will be important in a minute. And then let's go and scan the the end rhyme again. So let's start with land and name it a, oh, things and and Fed had to wrap around because, because, because yes, that's correct. That is how, and that's very important. So we, if we were discuss, this is often happens, we run out of margin space and we have poems. And so that would be one thing our kids would notice and we would help them put that together. So excellent question. All right, so we have 14 lines. So let's let's scan it. So we have land, so we're gonna make it small a again. And do we have anything that rhymes with it? Sand, so that's gonna be small a, anything else? command another a Where is it? We didn't say stand, right? we said sand. Sand, yeah. Stand is there. in the desert. You said land, right? I'm looking for stand. Where what line are ran? Oh, the third line. Yes. Good. So hold on to that because um, right now we're just going to label the ones at the end. But go ahead and put an a there. No, go ahead and put an a there because that's Oh, you need a pen. I have lots of pins. Let me help you out let me connect you with a pin. I always have a bunch of pins here. You're you so welcome. Anyone else need a pin? I have hordes of them. Okay, good. I'm glad you said something. All right, so we've got three A's anymore. No, we had four, right? We had four, one at the beginning of the line, three at the end. All right, so let's do stone. Now we have to cheat a little. <laughs> We're going to make stone a B. And Shelly has cheated. Does anyone know what cheat he has taken? He's rhyming it with frown. That's called a slant rhyme. So cheaty. Stone and frown. Yeah, you'd have to pronounce it in a Shakespearean way to get that one to come out, wouldn't you? Cheater. Stone and frown. I don't know. I'm not very good at it. (laughs) Maybe Scottish. Yeah, that might work. Well, there you go. you you got it to work given we're giving Shelley some help here. All right. Any other ones that go with that cheat rhyme? All right. So I think we're down at the word red. Is that where we are? Everything else is labeled. So that's going to be C. What else rhymes with that one? Fed. Fed. Okay, so we've got two C's there. Good. Anything else? All right. So I think we're on things. Is that right? So that's going to be what letter run D? Okay, so what have we got there? Kings. So we've got two Ds. Good. And we've got our next one is appear. And we're gonna to have to do some cheating again. Yes. So we've got E for appear. Say it again. Despair and bear. Good. So we've got three E's. Good. All right. So then I think we're on decay. Am I in the right spot? Okay. So are we on F? Okay. So we've got any words that rhyme with it away. Okay. So someone read yours out. Okay. Say it louder. A B A B A C D C E D. Okay. Okay. All right, so you've just figured out the rhyme scheme. E-D-E-F-E-F, good, that's a pretty clever rhyme scheme. More than we might have noticed just from our first reading of it. Um, So I said for you to hold on to stand, um, that is called an internal rhyme because it's not at the end. So do we have any more, I I see some more internal rhymes just to that word. Can you, do you see them? Hand. Hand, good. Any other ones? Sands. Sands. Yep. That's another internal one. Good. Now let's do something else. Um, I'm going to read it again and I want you to circle sounds that are the same. So um, if I say traveler and in the next line there's two, well actually there's traveler and antique. So anytime you're hearing those T sounds or if you hear another letter an S sound or whatever you find. Just circle them or mark them in some way that makes sense to you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I'll give you another couple of seconds, because there's a lot, a lot of sounds. They're also reading romantic poetry in there, but I don't know. A lot of laughing. A lot of laughing for Keats. All right. Do you have time? Need more? People are still marking. All All right. Who wants to share some sounds that you heard? Go ahead, Sarah. Um, Yes, lots of S's there at the beginning. Stand, sand, shattered, and even in the middle of visage. And yep, the end of lies. Lots of S. Anybody else find something besides S's? cold command. Yeah. Good. Any other ones? At the end, you're not there yet. No, go ahead. You can be wherever you want. Oh, i got got bear, despair, and fake far, I don't know, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay. Anybody else? find some that we missed. There's a lot of alliteration alliteration in there. This poem isn't there. Um, One of the games that you can play with your kids to get them warmed up and this doesn't matter how old they are. um, If you're in the car, uh, you can give a letter and have them um, either make a list or if you want to be even more fun, you can make analogies. So you might say, let's let's try our S's here. You might say stone is to stand as sand is to shattered. So your only rule is that it has to start with an S. That's it, that's the relationship between those words. And so that's a really fun way to get in the mood for generating thoughts when they're writing poetry. One of the fun things that I saw at the Emily Dickinson Museum this morning, by the way, was that um, she used to mark her manuscripts with pluses when she wasn't sure about a word, and then she would write around the margin all the word choices. And so they actually had a mural on the wall where you could slide the word choices to see what the line would be like if you subbed in those words. And that's really fun to do. I I taught um, poetry last semester um, to 16 to 18-year-olds, and... um, Then it was poetry composition. So we read poems just like we are in here and looked at them. In fact, this is one of the ones we read. But then we also just spent time throwing our poems up on the board and um, helping to generate new ideas for each other's poems. So I wrote an acrostic using Shakespeare's name and I didn't really like the rhyme scheme, the way it was working, And so they helped me fix it. And that's really fun. So playing alliterative games just to make mental connections is fun. If you're in the car, you could just call out a letter. If you're at home and you have the game's categories, the alphabet die is very helpful for these games. You can just roll the dice and um, play with whatever letter comes up. And the harder the letter, the more fun the game. All right, so we've got our 14 lines. We've labeled our rhyme scheme. Um, One other thing to note is this word and. So what line is that word and come in? if we're counting. Say it again. Oh, sorry, the one at the beginning. Oh, yeah, there's one at five. Sorry. Yes, there's one there. I didn't even notice it. Where's nine is our next one. So um, what do our 14 lines tell us about the form of this poem? Say it louder. It's a sonnet. And one of the things about sonnets is that generally, there is a problem in the first eight lines and a solution in the last six lines, or there is a question in the first eight lines and an answer. And if you look at many sonnets, you will see that those last six lines often start with and or but, or therefore <laughs> things that can, that are leading to a conclusion. So, so we have, what, what is established in the first eight lines of this poem about this man this, whose image we're seeing? How's he described? Angry. Yes. Mhm. Mhm. It's not a nice person. Searing. Yeah. Apparently, with some of the he had some power. yes. It, he wouldn't have a giant sculpture left to waste in the desert if he didn't have power, and it seems like he might have a whole lot that he maybe didn't wield very well. Again. And so, what happens in those last six lines? What's so the emphasis there. Just power in the nope. It's gone. It's, it's shattered on the ground. And, and notice I, I, the phrase King of Kings. This is a really common phrase. Um, so one of the things that I've read with my students in Latin before is some of Napoleon's reflections when he's exiled after um, his defeat at Waterloo. And he is reflecting on the great leaders of history. And what he says is that Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Napoleon will all be nothing more than fodder for the schoolboy to write exercises about, but that there is another leader, the King of Kings, whose men follow him anywhere from love and who he can command when he's not in their presence. And so that's a very different lesson, isn't it? And that's the same lesson we see here is this sobering warning. You, you thought you were great. You erected a monument to yourself and now it's nothing but stretching out in the sands. And how are those sands described in the last line? They're alone. Yeah, that's it. There's nothing left. It's all alone and it's shattered. So that's um, that's a good way to discuss power with your kids So this is one of the themes um, tomorrow I'm going to talk about fairy tales in one of the plenary sessions and I'm going to talk about echoes through literature and this is one of the echoed lessons that we see throughout literature is is that um, grasping for power So reading that little poem is maybe a great lead-in to reading something like um, Plato's Gorgias where he says what do you what do you want? And, and um, one of the, the guys, Callicles, interjects. There's always an interjector. Like He's having a dialogue with someone else. And eventually, someone in the room gets impatient and has to join in. And so Callicles comes running in and says, what I want is power over everyone around me. Um, and that Plato, or Socrates, through the voice of Plato, um, or vice versa, but quickly undoes that idea why that is not a good example of of what should happen in life and how um, that leads to tyranny. So when my son, my son's the oldest poor guy, so I left him in charge one day and um, he and the oldest sister were teasing the next sister down (laughs) and she decided in response, because this is not the first time this had happened, to run away from home. (laughs) And just to make this moment extra comical, she packed saltine crackers and tap shoes. (laughs) I have never in my life understood why those were the two things, but that's what went into the backpack, and her plan was to go to the nearby Walmart and live in the parking lot. Again, it's not a fully-orbed plan here, but she runs out the door, and he's panicked, because I'm not home, (laughs) and he, I'm sure, also guilty. Besides panic, a little bit of guilt there. (laughs) He has caused the running away, so he runs down the street, grabs her around the waist, and carries her home under his arm. (laughs) Now, she was very tiny for her age. And you can imagine what she felt like being carried like this. He happened to be in my class this year when we were reading Gorgias. So for the rest of the year, I called him Calicles. Um, (laughs) But these are great lessons and we can do it in something as short as poetry. So one of the things that I um, made a rule in my homeschool is it's easy for those older kids to scatter. And I said, no, you may not. Every morning we will sit around the fire if it's cold outside if it's nice and we will read scripture and poetry and some kind of short work of fiction together and then you may be dismissed, but not until then. And so that's one way I got so involved with um, poetry and fairy tales is that I needed short things that were very meaningful and beautiful that I could get my older kids to stay with the younger ones and have that morning because I wasn't willing to give it up. (laughs) It was really important to me. All right, so let's move on to our next sonnet. And this is Gerard Manley Hopkins. He, if you don't know him, he was um, British and also from the same time period as um, Christina Rossetti, so an eminent Victorian, although in his case, his poetry was not discovered until after his death and was published post-World War I. Um, Christina Rossetti was wildly successful in her lifetime and lauded by the Victorian public. Gerard Manley Hopkins was not, partly, possibly, because he had converted from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism and become a priest. So um, he was a little bit on the outs with his family, but um, so he became a priest poet, which is uh, to me very interesting in his look at the world. So mm, let's take a look at his poem. It's a little bit harder to read. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Um, this poem buys for one of my all-time favorites. So, um, what, I'm going to give you a minute to, to just look at it again. In fact, I think I'll just read it again, and you can start thinking about what images stand out to you this time, and then we'll look at the sounds. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe, bright wings. So, what kinds of images did you see in your mind as we were reading it? Yes. Yeah. It's a good description of where we live, isn't it? In Middle-earth, in between the sunrise and the sunset. What else did you see in your mind? The busyness of the day, how uh, man just goes after so much and just doesn't get much of anything, and then the, the evening, okay, my mind really goes places. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. That's good. And then Let the, it go. You know, Yeah. Sun rising and starting all over again. Good. Yeah, and one of the ways that Hopkins emphasizes that is that repetition of have trod, have trod, mm-hmm. have trod, right? And being seared and smeared and bleared. Good. What else did you envision? Seeing like Dickens London. Yes. Well, that's appropriate. They're it contemporaries. Like the the, like, yeah. Yes. Yes. He's, he certainly would have seen that in his home city. Filthy, yes. When I think ooze of oil, I think black oil, but going back, I don't think that's what he's, I think it looks more, because you're talking about the grandeur of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that clean purity. It's probably olive oil. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, right? You're in a press oozing out that olive oil. Huh? Oh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Good. What other images? The first three lines made me pick of creation. Okay, why? mm mm-hmm. Shining fulfilled oil yeah. makes me think of let there be light and there's light. And yeah. And there's uh, and there's greatness and who's the oil? I think of I actually think of oil under the earth. Hmm. That <laughs> just came to my mind of the oil under the earth. Under the earth, yeah. But Yes, yeah. (laughs) We're all worried about the water running out. I know. (laughs) It sort of reminds me of like the world is my little field. The world is charged like electricity and like particles attract each other when they have the same charge. Now, I don't think that's going far afield. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So, why do you think he does that? Why have this image of greatness? I mean, the poem is called God's grandeur. So we've got—I mean, shining like shook foil and being charged with electricity—that we associate with greatness. We do not associate crushing with greatness. So, how is he? What's he emphasizing there with that that second image? I think you said it. Power of Christ. Yeah. yeah. And the power of Christ in Philippians is what when he. Right, so when he empties himself and is humbled to death, yeah, And just, yeah, it's released, yeah, yeah, olive oil smells good when you're pressing, it doesn't, it, it looks pretty. Yes, yes, that that pool of something beautiful. Yeah. And the, and the abundance of it, right? The extravagance of her gift and the abundance of the oil. I think about this every spring. I have this giant paved area out in front of my house and and the paved area has been there for as far as I know for 30 years. But what happens every spring, every chink in those brick pavers, what happens? Weeds and grass come up, right? There's so much life that it will come forth. The world is charged with a lot of life and grandeur, and it will burst forth no matter what. So I I like to think about that when I'm thinking about this poem. Good. Other images that you saw? There's a lot of contrast between man and God. Yeah. There's something between man and God. You mm-hmm. can't feel nature because he's because he's separated. Yeah. Yep. Good. like that of a, a bird when she, yeah. you know, Keep keep going. <laughs> <And all>. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, that's just that's why we, we call we them really broody hens, bad. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hovering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that because of the Holy Spirit, there's Yes. Our own, and, and, yeah. and there's hope. Despite our best efforts, we can't seem to destroy it. <laughs> destroy <laughs> yes, right. There's that, that persistence and that care. There's a lot of burden material in Scripture, isn't there? of of God and taking under his wing. And so um, one of the things that my students noticed, we were translating John from Latin this year. And um, when you look at the scriptures that you're familiar with in a foreign language, you start to notice things. And one of the things that they noticed was how many analogies Jesus gives to his followers, and yet they still don't understand who he is. He's trying But his nature is large and requires a lot of analogies to try to get at who is he. So here he's a dove hovering over the earth, um, but he's the vine, the door, the bread. His blood is the wine. Many, many, many analogies to try to get to that. A description of the nature of God. So, kind of like Tim was talking about in there, there's that difficulty of saying what you've seen and feel. You can only get close. It's an approximate, and that's what analogies help us to do. Good. All right. So, now that you are all skilled at scanning poetry, how many lines do we have here? Fourteen. Were you surprised by that? No. No. There's a lot of sonnets in the world. Um, so what would you come up with? Did anyone scan the rhyme scheme already? Did you, all right, what'd you come up with? A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, C, D, C, D. Yep, good. So it's a pretty regular sonnet, isn't it? Um, because of the way he uses language a little differently, it can be hard to notice that the first couple of times through because um, you're concentrating on all the words that he has jammed together. And the syllables. he doesn't use our normal iambic pentameter of that you would hear in Shakespeare that sounds just like spoken language to us as speakers of English. he He's changed the stresses which makes it hard to read and hard to notice what's sometimes what that rhythm is. Good. So do we have our eight and six division like we did before? Yeah, we do. So what's the first what are the first eight lines about? You kind of have already hit on it. Yep, we got the problem. Man is wrecking the earth, so we've got God's greatness being smeared by man, and then what's the answer? Hmm. Yeah. He's he's. Is this like a reference, like the second coming, like the eastward? It's. It's hard for me to think it's not. <laughs> um, because he says the lights off the Black West went, but morning is breaking out of the East, it's pretty hard not to think that this is, I, I don't know. There's not a lot of, um, because his poems were published so far after his death, there's not a lot of critical commentary on Hopkins. So many have studied it since. But yeah, so I, I have always I assumed theology, really. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask what yes? Is wrong? Oh yeah. So <laughs> does anyone know what rec means? That's a that's an archaic word. like reckoning, mm-hmm. like To reconcile or to yeah, it often is used to mean to fear or to reckon to take as you said to take notice of. Um, Well, how is that rod used in scripture? Does anyone have a thought? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the rod of correction. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so, what does that come directly after that question? Why do we not now wreck his rod? That comes directly after what? Mm hmm. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. the grandeur of God is all around us. Why are we not seeing it? Why are we not paying attention? Why we our own thing? Right. Yes. So it, it, there's this pretty, these potent images that you've noticed about God's grandeur, and then we have people ignoring it. Sure, his, his kingship, yep. No, no, nothing new under the sun. And, and um, this poem is somewhat similar to, but much, much more hopeful, which makes sense when it, I finish my sentence. But it's somewhat similar in tone to Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. The difference between Arnold and Hopkins is that Hopkins is a believer in Christ and Arnold is not. And in fact, he is famous for arguing that we should still have classical education. So he argued against Thomas Huxley, not Aldous, author of Brave New World, but a relative. So he's famous for arguing with Thomas Huxley about this question. So. Um, Matthew Arnold was a classics master at a classical school, but he was not a believer. And so as he's envisioning the lights going out in the West, it's not a hopeful image. But he is still trying to argue for this vestige of classical education in the absence of anything on which it can rest. It's a very interesting debate if you're ever curious about reading it. Huxley is arguing that we live in a scientific age and therefore we don't need all those letters and classics and Latin, we need science and math. This also sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> um, STEM, he was the first STEM educator. Um, and so then Arnold is trying to defend it, but he's trying to defend it without all the roots of it. So it, it makes for a very interesting debate that they have. And then you have Arnold writing this poem, Dover Beach, that's not quite as hopeful as this one. It called Dover Beach? Dover Beach. Mm-hmm. He's standing on the chalk cliffs in England, or at least imaginarily he is. I don't know if he was actually there to compose the poem. But they're kind of grand and imposing. But his poem is a little bit less hopeful at the end, so makes a good contrast to this one. Good. Yes. So I feel like I read somewhere that Hopkins, when he became a priest, he felt like he had to give up poetry. And someone, a mentor or archbishop, whoever, said to him, "No, you should take it back up again." I don't know if 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 that's accurate, but I mean, imagine if he hadn't. Yeah. We would, I mean, he's written beautiful poetry. He has, like it, it's an argument for this has a place in, and, and right in, in the church as a Christian vocation. And um, interestingly, um, there's a tradition of that. So George Herbert, I didn't have time to bring any of his poems, but I go, I review them for my students. If you ever want to see some of his, um, I love Easter Wings by George Herbert. It's a shape poem, and um, George Herbert's argument was that he was also a minister, and he said, I write my poems for the sermon flyers. (laughs) In other words, people who would never set foot in a church, that's who I'm writing my poems to, because I'm going to tell them the gospel in this compelling and beautiful way, since they won't come in and hear my sermons. So it makes a nice analogy to Hopkins. I don't know if that story is true, though. I've also heard it. Um, But that, that idea of Christian vocation. Does anyone know what time we're supposed to finish? Am I past? They're starting the, uh, downstairs in, five minutes. in five minutes. So we should stop, but I do want to tell you that I did not leave out done on purpose. That is so that you can go home and practice what we learned. And if you have children or students that you want to practice with, you might notice how many lines it has. So, um, and there's some very interesting imagery about being a Christ follower in that poem. So, thanks you guys. I appreciate you participating. It was really fun. And I'll... See you downstairs.